Reading from the first chapter of Srimad Bhagavatam. Questions by the sages. We're discussing text number nine, Tatatatandasayushman, Babatadad Binistitam. Pumsamekan Tatashreyas, Tanna Sangshit Sangshitam Arasi. So the sages are playing an important role here through their inquiring spirit. And we're learning how that's uh, 50% of the equation, how there's a unity between the student and the teacher, and the one another can function without the other. So their inquiring spirit, their necessity, tatra-tatra-anjasa. Anjasa means, as we've heard to the sages have said you're qualified to explain this in easily understandable terms. And it also implies a sense of urgency on their part. At once, do it now. Please explain in readily and easily understandable terms. And the implication of this is further played out in the next verse, of course, which is the description of the times of Kali Yuga in which we live. So at any rate, Without going deeper into that until we reach that first, the point here tonight that we're beginning with is there's a sense of urgency on their part, a necessity, and necessity is it's said is the mother of invention. So, you know, there's a famous story of how Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur was printing a magazine about transcendence every day, a daily magazine, Nadia Prakash in Bengal, and a well-known person in the government questioned him, how can you publish a magazine about God every day, you know, a new magazine every day? Seems a little over the top, in other words, he thought. Or how can you do that? Anyway, the response from the Thakur was, oh, there's nothing. We could publish every minute. There's so much news there where everything is really going on. The only problem is no customers here, not enough interest. He said, in every major city you have two or three magazines, newspapers, about this world. And this is the dead world, where consciousness is asleep to itself, practically. What we find here is is what consciousness does in its sleep. All this movement that we know as the world, it's the dormant consciousness in a dormant condition, even when it's awake, it's asleep, comparatively. So you have no problem. Of course, there is a problem. Watch the news and you'll see there is a problem. It gets rather hackneyed, it's stale and repetitive. Again and again, let's go here, Bob, and see what he says. And he says the same thing. And You just get a headache from overanalyzing something that's not usually worth giving much thought to at all. They're scraping for news and uh, a certain type to keep people a little bit of sensationalism as much as possible to keep keep the interest and, and so forth. It's a it's an effort. 
But the topics about transcendence, about the Godhead, they're effortlessly pouring through Guru Parampara. Sometimes they had to stop Bhakti Siddhanta Sastri from speaking about it because he was just going and, and, and he, his health was a, in his disciples' consideration a, a concern. Your heart is going too fast and your old age, something like that. So there's no dearth of information there from that side and there's no difficulty in speaking about it in a compelling and an interesting way. But there's a lack of interest. There's a lack of customers. So here we find the sages have interest. They're good customers. And that eagerness on their part is being, there's reciprocation from transcendence in the form of Sutta Goswami. They were hearing the news of Ramaharshan speaking this, about the scriptures about material progress and how to make a sacrifice to get a good wife or a good husband or a son or go to heaven or whatnot. What and Sutta has come. They had a greater necessity. He's come to meet it and in conjunction with meeting him that is being inflamed that much more, reaching a new pitch. And this is then, of course, as they say, giving birth to the Bhagavatam. If we analyze, as we are, as we have been, words they're using in this verse, this is the first question among six that they ask. Oh, you who are blessed with long life, tell us at once in easily understandable terms, Ekantata, pumsam, ekantata shreyas. We talked a little bit about this last night. Ekantata, pumsam means human society. So tell us, shreyas means ultimate good. What is the ultimate good for human society? Ekantata, in, tell us completely in, in an essential manner. And we explained how this is a reference to what the Bhagavatam is about. It's comprehensive, it's complete. It's the mature fruit of the realization of Vyas, the compiler of all the texts that Sutta was schooled in, the Bhagavatam. It's ekantata also means it's exclusive. Dharma projita kaitavutra paramonir matsaranam satam vejam vastavam atravastu vastavam atravastu It cuts to the chase as we said, it, it gives us the bottom line. What is the Vedyam Vastavam, the knowledge about the ultimate, ultimate reality? Knowing which, the point is, exclusively, Ekantata, this alone, nothing else needs to be known. Can there be something that knowing which, nothing else needs to be known because, why? By knowing it, everything is known. It sounds a little over the top at first if you say, Bhagavatam alone is all you need. You could burn all the other books. You're going to get a reaction, especially in today's society. What? Sounds fanatical. Sounds sectarian and so forth. But the point of it here is what? That that which, there must be something that deals with the subject that upon knowing which nothing remains to be known. It's the Vedyam Vastavam Atravastu. It's the knowledge of the ultimate substance. There is said to be a place in the brain that if you touch it, then the whole body will become paralyzed. Or maybe in martial arts, they know some spot where you touch and then everything is frozen. So, Bhagavatam, Ekantata, something like this, 
it itself says in its Vastanade Shlok, the second verse of this of the, of the treatise in the preface, that there's no need for any other book. It's a very powerful statement. But then if you study the book, you see why it's making that statement. Because again, it deals with something upon knowing which nothing remains to be known. And upon knowing which you know that there's always something to be known also. <laughs> that you cannot know everything. It retires the need to know, so to speak. and allows one to live comfortably in the reality that all things cannot be known. That means all things cannot be controlled, which is what know, through knowing we try to do. Control the situation by which we'll get some security and stability and so forth, because it seems like things are out of control. <laughs> but there's some order to the lack of control, if you will. It's uh, it's kind of the, as I said, it's kind of the, the nature of the movement of love. Love is disconcerting at the same time that it's, we can never give it up. It's comforting at the same time. So, spiritual life is such, we tend to want to understand it, arrest the theory, and so forth. But if we have a good teacher, we'll find it. There's always something, there's always some gray area. There's always more to be known. It's keeping you off, off balance, in a sense, but in a beautiful way. Off balance <laughs> means not settled in, not complacent. Off balance because of, wow, it's throwing me off balance. It's making me dance. It's, uh, it's not a static thing. It's dynamic, the nature of reality. So... And we've talked about it in terms of love, to give an example. Of course, love in the material world is one thing, but it's nonetheless it serves as a good example. I've said before, we cannot rest until we find love. And when we find love, we have to move again. There's a movement that love fosters. There's a movement that the lack of love fosters. The necessity for such. And then there's a movement that the finding, the embracing, the arriving at love fosters. And the two are different. They may look similar, but they're different. Therefore, don't get in between two lovers to settle it out. You know, <laughs> When they're arguing, don't take sides there. It looks like a quarrel, but it's love. Another expression of it. It's dynamic, so it, it moves in. Uh, it was a hiriban. Nilmani says, this rasa, this love, ultimate love of God, it moves in a crooked way like a snake. She loves me, she loves me not. The union with the Godhead and the separation, union and separation, like the rising of the high tide of union and the low tide of separation that causes the longing to increase that much more. So the sages have some longing here. Tattva they want now. They have a necessity. In easily understandable terms, at once tell us. And this kind of necessity then is, as I say, part of the half of the equation. There is a reciprocation, a response to the necessity in the form of Sutta Vasami and Bhagavatam. Tell us, they said, completely. Ekantata means from beginning to end. What is the Shreya, Pungsa, the ultimate good? for human society. 
the word ekantata also then here implies tell us completely so that all doubts are removed. So this speaks of a quality of the speech also, not merely the subject about which they ask him to speak, but the quality of the speech. The quality of the speech that removes doubts. That must be speech that comes from a pure heart, a heart without material desire. Prakshit Maharaj in the 10th canto of this book, the 10th book of the 12 books of the Bhagavatam, begins with this glorification of Sukadev, his guru. He had no desire. He appeared on the scene naked, only a boy, naked. It means he was oblivious to the fact that whether he was even dressed or not. What to speak of being concerned about how he was dressed and all that goes with that. It's like children, at least when I, when I was a kid, when you were young, you would get presents for Christmas or your birthday and so forth and so on. And then there was that one year where you got a sweater. I was like, a sweater? <laughs> What's that? You know, who cares about a sweater? You know, where's the stuff? You know, and then the next year the sweater started to make sense. You know, a sweater. You know. So the people out there, I've got impressed, especially the opposite, you know, gender and so forth. And so the whole thing comes on. So Sukadev didn't have that. He never thought sweaters were, you know, cool, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. He was oblivious to external considerations. He could speak the Bhagavatam in such a way that it would change the hearts of people. That means, in a sense, qualitatively, completely. Awaken faith in them. Awaken faith means removing the doubt, giving them experience. I've described this revelation, if you will, as a conversation. The reciprocation of the Absolute with a big yes, for example, in the form of Om, and then so many statements thereafter. A response to the question of human society that arises, am I more than what I perceive, what meets the eye? Yes, you are. And and what you are, and what is the nature of being, and how to arrive at that that more, and so forth. This is a conversation, a conversation between the materially conditioned, unenlightened, and the Absolute. It needs to be mediated, because the language of human society, actual human society, is reason. It's not English, or Spanish, or French, or Latin or Sanskrit, or Bengali, it's, it's reason. This is what we are said to be possessed of as humans that differentiates us from other forms of life. Rational faculty. So we are to speak the language of reason. But the absolute, on the other side, speaks another language. So there's a conversation, but there's, there's a problem. We're speaking reason, at best, and to the extent we don't, we're not living a real human life. And the Godhead is speaking the language of love, which knows no reason, which transcends reason. So there's this conversation, but there's a disconnect. So the Guru is the mediator. The mediator. He speaks the language of reason, and he speaks the language of love. 
And he asks us to reason as far as we can and thereby know that the reason itself has limitations. And then start to speak the language of love by taking the step of submitting oneself unto him, unto to her, uh, into, their, into his or her guidance to come within the loving and affectionate grip of the mediator, so to speak, coming on both sides, speak the language of reason, familiar with the language of love. So, that person, Sutta Goswami here, they are asking him, tell us completely, you're qualified, completely in a way that will remove our doubts. Speak with reason in easily understandable terms. Give us examples, it means, from our own experience that can help us understand the concepts that you're talking about that transcend our experience. And do it with love. Do it with affection. You possess a secret that you've gotten from your gurus. As the previous verse said, You are submissive to your gurus. They shared secrets with you. You keep them in your heart. They shared their heart with you. It's become part of your heart. Now share your heart with us. Speak to us in easily understandable terms. Use reason, logic, use examples from our world that we can kind of get a grip on what, what is our ultimate good, our ultimate benefit, the best thing that we can do with ourselves and do it with, with feeling. We have confidence in you that you can do it with feeling. That kind of speech then of Bhagavatam, for example, that will remove the doubts. So as I've said often before, we give a talk, we use logic, examples, and so forth, and people listen, and they go, mm, yeah, okay, let that in. That makes sense. All right, I'll let that in. And then if you can speak well enough from your heart, you can capture their heart, and then they stop saying, yes, maybe, no, they just, the head gets frozen, the logic gets frozen, so to speak. And you can do heart surgery. Go in there and give resuscitation. Pump the life into the heart. So the most important thing about the speaking is not the reason, not the logic, but the love that, that's behind it, that backs it. It's the same Sutta Goswami, before he will speak, he will glorify Sutta, his guru, Sukadeva, from whom he learned, as the sages are saying here. Oh, and he will say, but Paranaguyam... Uh, he says, you spoke this Purana, this, the secret, Purana Guhyam, the secret, out of compassion. You spoke, it means with love in your heart. This is the reason you spoke it. That has power. Karunayaha, Purana Guhyam. Karuna, Karuna means compassion. He spoke, he says, my Gurudev spoke this Bhagavatam the secrets of this Purana, this, this uh, historical narrative uh, as, it's, as it's, these truths are couched within about the personality of God, of the avatar and so forth, his descent, he did so out of compassion, not out of any need of his own. Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur had, in years ago in India in the 1920s, speaking this, about this topic, he made a diorama 
a new series of dioramas made out of clay and so forth, which would tell, make philosophical points graphically to the people. It's the same thing like today of making a multimedia, you know, presentation, something like that. So he was very progressive in his times. And one of the dioramas he made was a diorama of a man speaking the Bhagavatam. Behind him was a thin curtain that you could just see through. And there was a lady, his wife with a baby, and the kids and so forth. The implication of it was he's speaking the Bhagavatam to feed his family as a business, in other words. He has desires to expand his domain, his kingdom. (laughs) One time Prabhupada was visiting with an Indian gentleman, well-to-do and so forth, had been invited for lunch. He came with some of his students and the man came in and said, I want to introduce my children to you. And Prabhupada said, yes, 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 before lunch. So he brought in, here's my son, oldest son, here's my second son, here's my third son, here's my daughter, and so forth. And then he took him in the next room and Prabhupada turned to his disciples and said, here is my sex life, here is my sex life. This is all he's telling me. It's rather crude, but <laughs> strong statement. This is how we expand material life. The attraction between the sexes is how our material life expands and we entangle ourselves. And then we have to fend for that, our own kingdom. And so he depicted there are a class of people who are professional reciters. It doesn't mean you cannot be a family person and do bhakti. You can. That's the power of bhakti. No doubt. But there was a class of people at the time who were professional reciters who would... He should have had... I didn't see the diorama, but the wife smoking inside or something, you know, bad habits. And so so he's, he's maintaining bad habits. His heart's not changing from reading the Bhagavatam, from speaking the Bhagavatam, and the hearts of others will not change either. One time, Gaur Kishore Das Babaji Maharaj, a great renunciate and... Uh, very much, uh, we call an avadut, very oblivious to the external world. He kept, he did his bhajan, his chanting, alone to himself. He had one assistant at the time. And another man who was popular for speaking the Bhagavatam and would get big crowds and so forth. He came and set up shop just uh, nearby where the Babaji Maharaj was residing. And he spoke Bhagavatam for three days and so many people came. And so his assistant, Babaji Maharaj's assistant was tempted to go and hear the Bhagavat. So when there was nothing that he could think of to attend to, to Gorkash, or didn't really need anything anyway, he'd go off and hear the Bhagavatam in those three days. And so after it was all over, then Babaji Maharaj said, that place over there where those people gathered, go and clean that place. He said, Babaji Maharaj, what can I do to clean that place? Bhagavatam has been spoken there for three days. He said, oh, you heard Bhagavatam? I only heard rupee, rupee, rupee. From over here, I could hear his heart. He wanted to set up camp next to Babaji Maharaj because he thought, I'll speak the Bhagavatam, Babaji Maharaj will come, and people will say, even Gorkashore comes to his Bhagavatam. I could say, even Gorkashore comes to my Bhagavatam classes. Just see the nature of my knowledge and my position. But Babaji Maharaj didn't come because all he could hear was, Rupee, rupee, rupee. You know, he wanted something. He had just filled with material desires and using the Bhagavatam 
as a means to fulfill it. So that will not change the heart. These professional recitals, professional uh, dramas of Krishna Leela and so forth, they had them in Vrindavan, and then there's a carnival and a, you know, a Ferris wheel and cotton candy and so forth. And people having a good time. It's a, you know, but nobody's heart changes. This we're not interested in. The sages were not interested in that. They wanted a kantapum samsayas. They wanted a discourse that was complete in terms of its being comprehensive from beginning to end, the bottom line, as I said the other day, the essence of the of the all that he had learned, and that was complete in the sense in the quality of his of his presentation, that it had the capacity complete to remove doubts, to fill me exclusively, to satisfy the necessities by way of overflowing. If Bhagavatam can be set up, can set up shop in our heart through the speech of a qualified person, then other desires who have set up their shop, they will be retired because the product is so much better and the price is so much cheaper. What do you have to do to get that? Just listen submissively. Even if you don't have a great necessity for it, if you listen, the necessity will come in the company of a qualified speaker. And what do you need to do to fulfill the, uh, the other desires in heart? So much you have to do. And they'll never be fulfilled, no matter what you do. So, this is such a nice thing. We, we, can't, we cannot understand why there are not more people here. In Mayapur, at the Bay of Bengal, where our Guru Maharaj established a large temple and ashram, they were rickshaw wallas, the guys who rode these like bicycles and would take people you know, to the market. You'd sit on the back. They would ride the bike and carry you to the river where you wanted to cross or to go to the market or whatnot. And so the disciples of Prabhupada would get on the thing and then they would give the rupees for the ride and these guys would haggle with us. You know, they wanted, because we were Westerners, we had more money, they wanted exorbitant prices. You know, 20 rupees for something that would cost two rupees, and so on. So, Prabhupada said to them, one day he said, to all the rickshaw wallas, give them this message, that if they would just get off the rickshaw, walk in the doors of our ashram, hear the Bhagavatam from us, and join us, tomorrow they can be riding on the rickshaw without having to drive it. <laughs> Instead, they're arguing, haggling to get... To, a little more money and, 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 and struggling only. They could be riding on the rickshaw. <laughs> and he said it with all, with earnestness, like it's so simple. And we have here in Bhagavatam 18,000 some verses to explain this simple thing. It just seems, can it be that easy? It can't be. It must be an exaggeration. No, it's not. It's that easy. So the sages here, they're inquiring like this. And they want to know what? They want to know, Pumsa Shreya. Shreya means ultimate good. What is the ultimate good for human society? What is the best thing that humans can do for themselves? What's the best way that they can occupy themselves? This is the first, as I say, of six questions that come in this chapter. The word Shreya here is important. It its opposite is prayas, shreyas, prayas. Prayas means immediate good, the short-term good. And shreyas means the long-term good. 
which is all, not always, it's an, that's the kind of investment, you know, in the future. We're addicted to the prayers, to the immediate results, especially in our credit card economy. We want it now. Uh, and they push that on as much. Get it now. So they, the sages want to know the ultimate good. And so, what are the preoccupations of human society? The sacred texts have basically told us that human society is moving on the basis of desire. Desire to be happy, desire to avoid distress. And these desires, although many, are divided into three basic categories. The desire for pleasure, sense pleasure. The desire for to better oneself materially, to rise up the ladder, to accomplish and attain some sense of security, to get money in the bank, to get insurance, to get a better job. Then there's, again, the first one, just pleasuring. You pleasure yourself in some way, and then you, you know, you go back and do it again, even though it's not, doesn't fulfill you, do it again. You say, I'm not going to do that again. Uh, and you go back and do it again. And this is, this is pleasuring. And then there's the movement, like, let's progress here, have goals and get somewhere. And then the third type of uh, desire is the desire to be to be virtuous for its own sake. These three desires are the result of three influences. The influence of tamas, rajas, and sattva. The, the gunas, the modes of nature, the modus operandus of nature is divided in the text into these three. Tamaguna means kind of a ignorance, a lethargy, inertia. So, under the influence of tamas, then... We don't go anywhere. We may go backwards even. Intoxication will fall into that and just meaningless entertainment and so forth. So, tamaguna, rajaguna. Rajaguna means like passion, so to accomplish something, to become more, this drive. And sattva. Sattva means goodness. It means virtue. It gives a clear understanding of the nature of the material situation. The ingress of sattva makes one, for example, disgust for the sake of coming to the truth, not just to make your point and win the argument and and so forth. Give some objectivity and some detachment will come from that. And clarity, and ultimately the clarity to see that something's going on here in the world and it's a combination of two things, the experienced and the experiencer. And I'm the experiencer. So it starts to put emphasis on the self and acting virtuously for its own sake. This influence, sattva, then becomes a bridge. A bridge from here to there, to the other side. Here, we desire to be pleasured. We desire to be somebody. And we may desire to be virtuous. This is called kama, the desire to be pleasured, to enjoy. Artha, the desire to be somebody, to accumulate and be something. I'm going to make something out of myself. And then the desire to be virtuous, dharma, for its own sake. I'm going to do what's right because it's right. 
even though it may not work out, I might be hanged for it or, or, or whatever. So this virtuous influence starts to take us in the direction of, obviously, moving away from the world, because I'm going to do what's right, even if it means they'll persecute me, they won't like me, I won't be popular for it, perhaps. I won't be rich for it. There's an invisible kind of value there. So this influence in material life is a bridge then, serves as a bridge from the world of desire, which means the world of wanting to be something, to be pleasured, to be someone, and even to be virtuous. And to transcend all of those, this sattva is a bridge that takes us to the other side where we realize, I am someone, something of value. And I am inherently virtuous and inherently joyful. Sat, chit, ananda. I exist, sat. So the drive to be somebody and establish myself and get security, I don't have to do that. I am somebody and I never die. I'm secure. I have that kind of power inherently in me. And I was looking for it outside of myself at the cost of knowing and finding and realizing the kind of security that is inherent within me, that I am a unit of sat. And as far as virtue goes, I am virtuous. I'm a unit of wisdom, of knowing, of knowledge. Knowledge is virtuous, right? It's pure knowledge for its own sake. I'm a unit of the purest knowledge. Sat, chit, and ananda. Inherently, I am of the nature of happiness. Sat, chit, ananda. So here we have a brief description of the world, desires, the whole thing, and what? And beyond. Right? Duriya, the fourth, beyond, moksha, liberation, and the realizing that I don't need to be any, try to be anything. I am something, and I am happy. (laughs) And I'm virtuous, satsit ananda. So, dharma, artha, kama, desire for pleasure, desire for being somebody, the desire for being, even being virtuous, all fall short of the ultimate good. To work for virtue for its own sake or is, is the best because only it points us in the direction of the other side. To the extent that it doesn't, well, who cares how virtuous you are in the world? Right? And the ultimate issue doesn't mean much. So, the whole world of desire and aspiration, that can't be the ultimate good. And can moksha be the ultimate good? Is that the shreyas then? It will be thought there's dharma, there's art, there's kama, and there's moksha. And that's it. That's the fourth. You've gone beyond the world now. You've realized that you are a unit of sat, chit, and ananda. Well, Bhagavatam tells us there's more. The ultimate good is not merely transcending the illusion of needing to be some, somebody to be pleasure, to be virtuous, and to realize that you are inherently these three things. No. That's the fourth goal. That's called Chatur 
Purushartha, the four arthas, the four goals of human society, sought to culminate in emancipation, enlightenment, liberation. It's a big thing. It makes all these other things pale in comparison, as we're describing. But they want to know the ultimate good, and Sutta will explain to them a good that transcends moksha. Now, what is that? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's explanation of Bhagavatam describes it as panchama purushartha, the panchama, the fifth goal of human society. Prema pumartha, mahan, he said. Prema pumartha, the ultimate good that is prem. Mukti, moksha, is only a part of prem. Prem, love, bhakti, shuddha bhakti, Prem bhakti gives mukti, but mukti cannot give prem. So now we enter the mystery of the Bhagavatam, which, as I said earlier, the subject is consciousness. So the subject of consciousness is what the Upanishads deal with too. But in a very abstract and general way, how does the Upanishads deal with consciousness? They say, you are consciousness. Consciousness is God, you are God. This is a beginning teaching only. It's like saying to someone who lives in a cave and has never ever seen sunlight. You go, the other guy goes out and sees sunlight. He comes back and he has to tell this other guy who's never seen light at all what the sun is. Good luck. What is the sun? The sun is vegetation, right? fruits, sweet ones, Sour ones, vegetables, grains. The sun is rain. The sun is life. How am I going to tell this to this guy living in the cave what the sun is? Let me tell him about a prominent feature of the sun. I'll crack a hole in the wall of the cave and a little lurry of light will come in and say, there it is, that's sun. He goes, wow, that's cool. <laughs> that's, that's something. That's a start. That's like, whoa, I've never seen light before. Look at that. Fascinated by it. But really, I mean, to tell him that all the implications of sun would be difficult, he has to be taken by the hand and brought out there and then never enter that cave again. Going there, one never returns. The luminosity of that plane is described in Gita. That place is not in need of sun, moon, fire. It is self-luminous. And once going there, one never returns here to the cave of material darkness. Darkness means ignorance, and ignorance means attachment never returning. So Upanishads speak about it in a very rudimentary way. They say, you want to understand God? Okay, let's pick out the one thing in this world that most resembles God. What will it be? You. A conscious being that's aware of itself. So, there has to be a talking point here. A beginning point. You. You are God. You are of the nature of God. God is consciousness. You are consciousness. You start to get the idea. Then there's elaborate descriptions. 
what you're not, what you're not, what is the attachment, what are the desires, and so forth, what kind of existence this fosters, and it's here today and gone tomorrow, you're an enduring unit of consciousness, and so forth. The Bhagavatam takes up from there, and it wants to tell us the whole thing, like what is the sun, what is the, this is the sun, here, eat this, it's a peach. Wow. <laughs> like compared to what you're getting in the cave there, you know, some moss or something, or I don't know what. And so uh, it's an elaborate explanation of something where moksha just kind of like is the beginning point only. And it teaches us how to arrive at moksha or liberation through bhakti. The generosity of bhakti is it extends itself to us no matter how qualified or unqualified we may be. And the other side of this, she takes us so high that it makes the entry point of enlightenment, mukti, moksha, look small in comparison. Let me give you another idea here. If I say to you, look, the problem is your material attachments have created an identity for you. Your sense of I is derived from your sense of my my house, my country, therefore I am an American, I live in you know, California, as it may be. It's my race, the human race. I'm Caucasian, I'm Negro, or whatever it may be. Our mys, I'm a Marlboro man, I'm a Mercedes man, you know, and so forth. All of our desires define us. So my my is my I. So we dismantle all this and we say, there's nothing to this I. Because nothing really is yours. So that I is false. So we've not just dismantled your body, it's not you. And your mind even, where all these desires are born and the personality, that's all dismantled. So you're this unit of consciousness. So we've gone from like a concrete, you know, sense of what we thought we were. Reach out, touch it, this is me and the real things to hold on to this very kind of like, whoa, isn't it? It's just consciousness. It's, it's rather abstract, right? And it's kind of the antithesis of my material existence. Now, we have to go in and research this consciousness. And when we research deeper and deeper, we find it starts to take shape also. It has a shape. Krishna is the shape of ecstasy, the shape of eternity, the form of knowledge. We're consciousness, but we're a unit of consciousness. We're one with the fire, but we're different from the whole. We thrive in relation to it. We want a union with the absolute that's dynamic. A union of love, where there's you and me, but you and me, you and I, God, and that become we. So there's eternal interaction between the Godhead and ourselves. We call this Leela. It's divine play. This is the playing out then of love, the movement, the celebration of fullness that the Absolute is constituted of. It's so full that it moves not out of necessity and lack, but out of fullness. So that movement, that Leela, is different than the movement under karma, which is out of necessity. It may look similar to an untrained eye, but it's very different. It's the movement, as I said again, of love. We cannot rest till we find love. And that movement is troublesome beforehand. We reach love and, ah, rest for a moment. I've arrived. And then, ah, there's something to do. Because after all, 
if we were God in all respects, if our union in enlightenment was absolute and there was no distinction whatsoever between ourselves and the Godhead, then how did we get in this situation in the first place? We are a unit of consciousness, but we are obviously prone to illusion at the same time. The Godhead cannot be otherwise not worth attaining. Just like the sun. The rays of the sun may be covered by the cloud. We say it's a cloudy day. There's no sun. But if you fly up above this cloud, the sun is shining, right? So the ray may be obscured by the cloud, but the sun will never be obscured by the cloud. So this is Vaishnavism. That's what we teach here. (laughs) Mukti, in the context of doing bhakti, we arrive at mukti and thereby we realize the qualitative oneness that we have with the Godhead, but the quantitative difference is also realized and it becomes wonderful. There's a difference, in other words, that has value. After all, pride is the spice of life. So we have a oneness with the Absolute in quality. We are consciousness, the Godhead is consciousness, but there's a difference also. And the difference is beautiful because it ornaments the whole affair. It enables for, for there to be an interaction eternally in perpetuity and so forth. So there's a oneness and a difference simultaneously. And so this is the subject of the Bhagavad This will make your head spin, you see. If I just say, you look, material life is like this. There's variety. It's all born in the mind. You think it's red. You think it's blue. He thinks it's green. That's all just relative to the eyes you have, the mind you have. All this variety is just born from such. Take off this mask and then you see what? the thing for what it is, rather than you see it red, you see it blue, because you have blue glasses, because you have red glasses, because you have green glasses, take off the glasses. If I talk about spiritual life as the antithesis of material life, that'll be a little easier to follow. But it's more than the antithesis. It's not just a reaction. Enlightenment is not just a reaction to the problem of material life. It's an integration of the whole material existence and spiritual existence it's the harmonious and healthy integration of the two. Like in Mayavad, in, in Advaita philosophy, another form of Vedanta, they deny the world. Shankar wants to tell us the world doesn't exist. That's hard to swallow. Pure subjectivity. Ramanuja comes and says, what's the meaning of pure subjectivity? There's no object to be conscious of. And so these debates within Vedanta begin and so forth. If we go to the Bhagavatam, then we find beautiful harmonizing of all these ideas. And we get a glimpse into the multifaceted nature of consciousness. So this, then, is what the sages want to know about. They want to know the ultimate good, and the ultimate good he's going to speak about is not dharma, virtue, artha, material acquisition, security, power, not kama, sense pleasure, working for any of these things. This is not the ultimate occupation for human society by which they will attain the greatest good. Neither is striving for moksha or liberation in and of itself. Striving for moksha in and of itself is like you're running down the street because people are chasing you. These people represent so many desires. You see a door, you go in and you close it, lock it. Ah, It's a relief. They're gone. Ah, I'm in the room. Now what? I'm in the room. But you haven't turned the lights on. 
see what's going on in there in the realm of consciousness, all the possibilities and so forth. So bhakti seeks to acquaint us with all those possibilities. So the ultimate good, as we will hear, Sutta's response in the next chapter, that is Prem. He says, Savai pum samparo dharmo yato bhakti roksuje ahoituki apatiyatayayatma samprasidati Prem, Prem pumarto mahana panchama purushartha beyond mukti. It's hard to grasp. Beyond mukti. See, mukti and Valyangan mukti is escape. Like I said, running in, close the door, get away from the desire, get away from the world. Escaping from jail. No, no, no. You have to get out. You have to be released so that you can interact with society in a healthy way. Mukti is a truce, not peace. Even peace. Real peace implies healthy interaction, exchange of commerce and so forth. I mean, North Korea and South Korea have a truce. What's that? So, somebody, materially speaking, they want to acquire, right? And acquiring is a cause of suffering. Someone pursuing mukti wants to stop suffering. So, he or she stops from acquiring. I want to stop suffering. That's also, one wants to enjoy the world, one wants to get away from the world. It's a reaction. Reaction to a problem is never the solution. There must be a reaction by which, in this instance, we step back from the world and our absorption in things, seeing that such is problematic. But then you have to think about those things in that world. And is there a way to healthily interact with them? Well, I'm interacting with them as if they are mine. If I say, well, if they're not mine, then fine. I'll do nothing. If I can't have it, I'll do nothing. If you tell a child, no, you can't have this, he says, well, then I'm not doing anything. Hmm. They go pout in the corner. No, that's not the solution. They're not yours. Think about it. What's the implication? Nothing belongs to you. What's the implication? It must belong to somebody then. So, things have a meaning. Things have. A, we're misconceiving the world and thinking it's ours. If we think, we realize, I can't keep it. Darn it. Then, psh, nothing. I'll do nothing. This denies the fact that you actually have something to do. There is an owner of things, and you belong to him too. You're also owned. (laughs) You're also part of the Godhead the part that the whole has a purpose for. And so to become acquainted with that, therefore bhakti is active. It's a doing something. Okay, I'm acknowledging that. It begins with the gratitude, offering of service, and this matures into love. And this is then the healthy interaction. And you can be in touch with things without being troubled by them or having denied that they that philosophically tried to deny that they exist altogether and so forth. This is artificial. Hmm? So this is what Bhagavatam goes into. It It doesn't stop short in the discussion of consciousness. Therefore, it's Shruti Saramekham. Amongst the Shruti, the Upanishads, this is the essence. And this is what the sages want to know about. Pumsa ekam tata pumsam. What is the ultimate good? Tell us exclusively and completely and comprehensively hmm? with feeling in a way that will eradicate all doubts from our own hearts that which is the Shreyas 
ultimate good. That is prem. That is what humans should be pursue in pursuit of prem, prem bhakti. And how do you do that? You do sadhana bhakti, bhakti in practice. When we do bhakti in practice under good guidance, it turns to bhakti in ecstasy, pava bhakti. When that ecstasy is churned in bhakti, it turns into prem, love. It doesn't end. We don't do something to stop it. We don't meditate to stop meditating. We do bhakti for the sake of bhakti. So, this is then, what is the shreyas? Any question? I have um, a question about something that you said yesterday in regards to the different religions. And um, if one doesn't have a conception of the existence of something, it's impossible for that person, or even conceive of the possibility that this thing exists, it's impossible for the person to actually move in that direction. Well, they already have they already have a sprinkling. They have some interests in what it's about. In the instances in which you're talking about, and they're all shadows of that or shades of that. So they have some. They're not completely foreign to the idea. Now they're they're foreign to the idea that in their own experience. You see, we're not talking about something that's really entirely out of the realm of people's experience. That's why bhakti is so user-friendly. It talks about, and it's, it's readily understandable because we're living for love's sake. What are the options? Acquisition, okay? Renunciation. There's only three options. You can acquire things, exploit the world, which is criminal, right? Taking things that don't belong to you. Or you can decide, think nothing belongs to me, so I'm not going to do anything. I can't have it, I'll do nothing. That's renunciation. And the third thing is, well, it belongs to somebody, and that person, therefore everything is meant for that center, and therefore that center should be served, and all things should, be move, should move for that purpose alone. So you have karma, you have jnana, you have bhakti. I don't think it's so hard for people to understand because that's the way their life life works. Well, what I'm saying is that it, it is readily explainable, but you have to explain it to <laughs> people. You spoke about it as if, well, they have no experience, so how can you ever get them to understand it? You know, I'm saying that actually people do have experience of more or less a reflection of the whole thing. And in their own life, you, you, you explain to them like, well, you do this, you take, and then you get exasperated from taking because it's not fulfilling and you renounce. And, and then there's the times when you dedicate, when you give only for the sake of giving, however materially you know, conceived that may be. Even materially speaking, that's considered to be the most fulfilling thing. If you talk to people, yes, yeah, they'll agree. Right, 
when I just give for the sake of giving, that's that's when I'm my best. Hmm? So it is within their experience. Now you just have to hone that. Therefore, what we speak about is not anything artificial. We're speaking about universal truths that everyone actually acknowledges. We're just honing that. Like, let's say, for example, selfishness is unbecoming. Who will disagree? Dishonesty is bad. It's selfish. Let's say. Who will disagree? Even thieves want to divide and loot honestly. So on some level, you see. So we're talking about universal principles, and then we are just taking them. Bhagavatam seeks to take them as far as they go. What are the implications of that? That ends up in Leela. That's the whole idea. So it's not that foreign, foreign of a thing. You can explain it. Yes. There are probably a, a lot of texts out there across the world that lay claim to containing the ultimate good. So without taking the time, which would take a long time, to go and study every single one of them, how can we know for sure, Bhagavatam, that this is the one? By studying the Bhagavatam. Because <laughs> you'll see, it talks about it. It, 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 is, it is a book comparative religion par excellence. That's what it is. It goes through all... See, we're talking about very, in a very basic way, principles that are... It's not as complicated as you think. Every book is so nuanced and so different. There's basic... Every religious book, let's say, you want to talk about religious books, you look at what they're talking about. They're either talking about religion for material betterment and acquisition... Oh, my Lord, you know, what is it? Give, oh, Father in heaven, give us our daily bread. You know, okay, well, that's what that's about. Religion for the, you know, for the improvement of human society, making us better humans, making us happier. I mean, Americans think that, a lot of them think, Christians think that, obviously, this is the best religion. We got the most stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there's that side of it, right? Religion for that. And then there's the moksha side also as well. Emancipation, liberation, where then religion starts to become more esoteric. You start to find more common ground with other traditions and esoteric side and so forth. And then you look at it and see the extent that it constitutes a kind of a polar opposite. Getting away from taking, retirement, vacation, putting an end, peace. Uh, and then you have this super-religious idea, if you will, of bhakti, where it's not about getting the peace. Neither it's about taking. So it's about, so the, in all these different positions, you're going to find shades of all of this, right? You could talk about, there are probably forms of Christianity that speaking about this more similar ways than just, you know, acquisition. There may be forms of Buddhism that speak more about devotion and the bodhisattva vows and, and so forth. So you find shade of the, the Bhagavatam is, just, is really like keying in, it's focusing exclusively on this idea. It calls frame, love. And it's plumbing the depths of what is love, what is giving, what it takes to give completely and unconditionally. What are, what are the elements that are required, you know? on your side, and then what's the perfect object? It's describing the perfect object of love. It hones in on this, this idea of prem. So, again, you can look and see 
where is this developed? The whole idea of Krishna, just think about what it is, what it's saying, how it's, ex- it's explaining the Vishayalamana of Prem, the perfect object of love. If you study carefully what the sages mean by their experience of Krishna, you see, oh, this is what they're talking about. The nature of the Absolute. I mean, some religions have it like some old guy with a beard, you know, keeping score on a cloud or something like that, you know. It's a very different idea. You know. Youth, beauty, charm, prevails. And, and even to the point where love becomes the supreme. It transcends the Godhead. It conquers the Godhead. Like I said, most religions are talking about God as the most worshipable object. We're saying worshipable object of God is, is the devotion that his devotees are possessed of. So, first of all, there's not that many books to study. Most of them you can throw out right away. They're self-help, self-aggrandizement, ego-enhancing approaches to religion. Then there's a few disciplines that are actually ego-effacing. Forms of Vedanta, all nuances of Vedanta. Buddhism seeks to be ego-effacing. There may be, there's the, within, within the Islamic tradition, there's Sufism, mystical path, ego-effacing. If you look at it historically, it's a mixture of Advaita Vedanta from Hinduism and Islam. And then you've got Christianity. And the more Christianity becomes esoteric and spiritual, well, the more Eastern it looks. You've got people becoming vegetarians, entertaining concepts of reincarnation. You've got Thomas Merton doing meditation, learning from the Vedantins and the Buddhists and so forth. So there's not a whole bunch out there. Really, and there's all kinds of newfangled, you know, stuff, uh, new age stuff that tends to be ego enhancing and fantasizing, and it's, I mean, so these are the kind of the basic traditions. So you, there's not a whole lot you can examine them, and there's a little of everything we're talking about in all of them. But Bhagavatam is excelling in this one and praying, and playing this out to to the extreme with good reason. Philosophical support and so forth, and offering a means to experience. So. Yeah. Raj, yesterday you were mentioning how there's academics that were trying to say that the Bhagavatam was written by different people in different times and stuff like this. But there's also academics who have shown many times where the Christian Bible has been written at different times and it's been changed throughout history and stuff like this. Yeah. But my understanding is that, you know, in the uh, fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, that this is passed down from the sun god to the parampara, and that this is the word of Krishna itself. So, um, how are we to, besides me just thinking that they're wrong and the acharyas are right, how are we to reconcile that? The academics, you mean? Mm. Well, the idea in the Bhagavad Gita that, you know, spoke to the sun god, it means that this is old, been around for a long time. It originates in the Godhead, as I said. It's Apurusheya, has no human authorship. Nonetheless, it is written down in human society. That's revealed in the heart and, and then recorded. But its origins transcend the authors. It's not part of their mental factory. Now, so your academics look at it and they think, well, wait a minute here, you know, This type of Sanskrit was prevalent at this time, and these books are written in that Sanskrit. Now, 
this book here is written in a different type of Sanskrit, and that was prominent at this time. So these books are written at different times, maybe by you know long periods of time. One person couldn't have authored them all. And now your tradition is telling you it's all written by one person. To take that in a dynamic sense, we mean it's aparusheya, it's divine, it comes from God. But revelation is an ongoing affair. It's a living and ongoing affair. So, what might be thought, for example, one way to think about it, as a blemish in today's society, was thought of as a virtue in times gone by in the spiritual discipline of Vedanta. And that is that you write something and attach somebody else's name to it. If I wrote a book today and I said, you know, sign John F. Kennedy, and then I tried to prove it, <laughs> this is written. I found a book written by Kennedy that was never seen before, you know. Let's publish it, it'll be a big seller, you know. Then I would be, you know, put in jail for that, right? But in the spiritual tradition, the name Vyas is written. Vyas. It means compiler. And people who were in the succession, who were inspired, and to whom texts were revealed, further explanations, ongoing revelation, might write Vyas. It's not coming from me. Out of humility and acknowledging the, the descending truth, they don't put their own name on it. Vyas. There's one way to think about it. Do you understand? Now, another way to think about it also is that the fact that the book, we find the manuscript, for example, the Bhagavatam, maybe like 6th century type of Sanskrit, and the Upanishads, you know, much earlier. It also may be thought, because the book's been copied, because it's good. <laughs> they keep it, and they keep copying it, and, keep, and they, naturally it's copied in updated language, and so forth. So, there are ways to, to, uh, to think about it, that... Um, that keep it alive, so to speak, and in a dynamic sense, keep alive the idea that it's coming from one person. After all, Krishna Dwaipayana Vyas, right, the one author, is thought to be an avatar, a Shakyabesha avatar. So, in Krishna Dwaipayana Vyas, this Vyas, Vyas means compiler. There's Parsharam was a Vyas. Krishna Dwaipayana, his son, was a Vyas, a compiler. And even it's said in the Bhagavatam, while we say one author, the Bhagavatam itself describes Vyasa as the editor, and that he had Jaimini and others writing and so forth, compiling this this wisdom and putting it in literary form. So, and we we acknowledge it as an ongoing thing. We don't acknowledge it to be a static thing that happened once, and there it is. We see it as a conversation, as I said, between the Godhead and the human society, and a mediator is the Acharya, is the Guru. So these commentaries. What is the meaning? Chaitanya Bhagavat. We know it was written 500 years ago. We don't try to say, well, really, it was written thousands of years ago, right? We say, here it is. It's an ongoing revelation. It's talking about Krishna in the form of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu at the time of his appearance. And then explaining it in light of what's said in the Bhagavatam and showing that it's him, here, he's here, you know, and so on. You follow? Does that help? Yeah. But can we also say that Bhagavad Gita is yeah, there's no evidence for interpolation in the Bhagavad Gita. The oldest manuscripts 
known to human society, the Bhagavad conform with the with current manuscripts. There's no evidence for interpolation in Bhagavad Gita. Yes. Early in your in the talk, you were talking about the, the human language of reason, and that um, Bhagavan's language of love, and that the the charity is the one who translates. But we also see in human society, humans are emotional, and one emotion is love, and of course, love also turns into lust and other very horrible emotions. But there are there is love like mother's love, or sometimes the guy in the, in the infantry who gives his life to save, save the rest of there's There's these moments of selflessness and giving. And mm-hmm. So what value does this, this love, if, does it have? But what does it have value, or what value does love have in the material world and giving a light on love in the spiritual sense, and how can the charge well, it's a shadow of the whole affair, and the shari can help us to propose our propensity for loving in the right place to hone it, where it, where it should be reposed, so that it will it will amount to the full face of love. So there's a shadow of love, a semblance of love in, mat- in material existence, but not the full face, because it's often motivated. Inevitably, it will be motivated. Because as long as we are attached to the body, we have needs, and those needs are driving us. For a moment, we may, the needs may be turned off as a reflex or something, and somebody does something that, that's not in their own interest and is not calculated. And so those moments should be thought about, and, and, and they speak to us about the self and its potential for loving that's coming out. And so the, the mediator, the guru here, helps us to hone that. It's valuable, but only as much as it's honed and, and as we learn to repose it in the, in the perfect object of love. Otherwise, when you get in your name in the newspaper, something you saved, you know, somebody. You know, of course, any act that we do that is selfless to whatever degree is good for us. There's growth in that. So this is what human life is about. You know, the, it's governed by reasoning, and we have a sense that there's more than reasoning, and we, so, sometimes, sometimes it'll show itself a little bit. So to hone that, then, to focus on that and say, this is the valuable thing here. Now this should be cultivated, and how to cultivate that. That's the idea. All right, we'll stop there. Kantarasim Bhagavatam ki jai, Gaur Bhaktabhinda ki jai, Gaur Premanandi.